All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Tuesday. This time each week when we come together for a time of fellowship, when we come together to study your word, and we know that your Holy Spirit moves among us. Indeed, we know that your Holy Spirit has called us here, and we're grateful. And we pray that your Spirit will fill us with energy and enthusiasm and help us to come to a deeper understanding of the book of Acts and the story of, of these early followers of Jesus. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, all right, I think we're all set with the podcast. So, let's see. Is there anything y'all would like to talk about before we just sort of plunge back in? Yes, Charlotte. No, 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 there's not. The question is, if, like, if a Bible gets ruined and old, is there a special ceremony to go through to like retire it officially or something like that? And the answer is no. And it's because of what we understand the Bible to be. The Bible is a printed document or printed library of writings that come to us from these ancient people. In Islam, the Quran is treated differently. Right? In, the Quran, in Islam, there is a very specific way Qurans are retired, to use your word. But the difference is, in, in Islam, the Quran is basically, basically God present. It's, it's the embodiment of God, in a way. In, for, in, when, when I read about Islam, I see in it that Jesus and the Quran are very sort of equivalent in that way. And so they treat the Quran very differently. The way, but for us, the Bible is the Bible. Um, and we don't have, it's just, it carries no special meaning or imminence in itself. What? Well, let me tell you what I've done, because I have a number of them. They're all stacked in the closet. I'll leave them to my kids to deal with. That's actually what I've done in practice. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe for your, your yes. Yes. What does God have against yeast? As in, at the Passover, they are to make their bread without yeast. Now, why would that be? What do you, what does, what, what does yeast require from the baker? Time. And there's no time. You are to sit down. There's no time to wait for the dough to rise. You are to make unleavened bread without yeast. You're to put on your Nikes. You're to grab your staff. You're to sit at the table and you are to eat ready to go because you're going to go, 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 go. No yeast in your house. Right, because it represents this, this, this. And, and Jesus will talk about yeast because um, as being something that you know, um, 
it's something that that can grow. Let's let's say we had something somebody had introduced something deeply wrong here at St. Andrew. Okay? And if we didn't do something about it quickly, it would be like yeast that was that was growing and we would need to deal with it early on. So I don't think it's God has anything against yeast because you know, yeast makes makes good bread, right? But there is this sort of theological part of it in, in the Passover um, about being in a hurry. Anything else that I might help with a little bit? And what's your solution? And he says, start, start a day ahead. Yes, yes, yes. That's why, that's why all these stories are actually embedded with a lot of theology, right? So it's a lot of theology in the story of the Passover. It's not just a story. These aren't just actions. They're not just, um, you know, reports like you'd find in the Dallas Morning News or something. They're all, they're all written with theology in mind. They're all written to talk to you about... Talk, about who God is and who we are and what the problem with this world is and what God has done, is doing, and will do to solve the problems of this world. And so every story you come to. Now, it varies. Some of them are a lot more valuable than others, and some of them really don't have any much theology at all. But all the big ones, like the Passover story in Exodus 12, right? A lot of theology in that story. Anything else? Okay, well we are in the book of Acts and we are in the second chapter and so we are still, my friends, on the day of Pentecost, right? They're all gathered in some upper room somewhere and the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus, the third person of the Trinity, God present with them, has arrived. And the Holy Spirit has filled them. Um, the Holy Spirit has been manifested in tongues of fire, in the sound of a violent wind blowing through the room. They've all stood up and, and they're able to speak the good news in languages they don't know. We talked all about that last week. It's this coming together of what was... Um, what God smashed apart at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And they're ready to tell the good news in all the languages of the world because it's the Spirit who's going to give them the power to do this. And so then Peter stands up um, after the Christians were derided as maybe they're just drunk. Peter stands up and says, no, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, they're not drunk, and delivers this incredibly bold speech. It's a speech that is apocalyptic at times in tone because it is about the full extent of what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God. He has ushered in the kingdom of God and nothing will ever be the same. It's not just like, you know, you can see little graphs where you're just kind of working your way up the graph. That's not what happens. This is this is this this point of dis, just it, it's like a everything is torn apart at that point. Everything will be different. 
Paul writes a little bit, a bit later, if anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's not the same. And we live on the post-resurrection side of this. We live at the time when the kingdom of God is with us. The kingdom of sin and death is still, but the kingdom of God also. We are, so we live between the times when both kingdoms are present. You, you can't read your new, your new Testament rule very well without understanding that the kingdom of God is both present and coming because it's going to come to its full manifestation with the return of Jesus. And so, so Peter stands up and he quotes from the book of Joel, which is this apocalyptic language about the, you know, the stars falling and the moon falling and the skies darkening and all this stuff. And it's also, uh, I'll call it a sermon, in which Peter gets very accusatory. Remember? Peter looks at the crowd and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised, whom you crucified. Right? And you can just picture the crowd sort of that's listening to this sort of getting worked up. I mean, I'm sure some were getting maybe angry, some were getting convicted. I don't know. I can remember as a 13-year-old boy going to... Now, I was an Episcopal altar boy. Okay? Just picture this in North Louisiana. I'm an Episcopal altar boy. My friend Ray next door was a full-on Baptist. <laughs> and Ray invited me to go with him to a revival. Oh yeah, it was a t it was a good old tent revival, baby. And so I went there, and the revivalist guy, you know, this was like three nights long. I went, and he is bringing it, right? And I'm getting worked up, worked up. I tell you, worked up until finally he's, he had, he does the altar call. And I, I'm so worked up, I go down to the front. He says, do you want to be saved? I said, yes, yes, I do. So I go down to the front. And I, whatever, whatever happened there. So then I go home. <laughs> so my, my mother's from Connecticut. Episcopalian. And I'm laying in bed. Lights are out. She comes in. She asks me how it went comes over, he sits down on the edge of the bed. I say, I said, oh, oh, mom, I was saved. <laughs> and she pats me on the shoulder. He says, that's nice. <laughs> right? So I think about that when I come to this passage, because of course these people are getting worked up. They're not all sitting there, you know, glum-faced and bored with their arms crossed and wondering what's going to come next. Peter is working them, God is working them, I should say, really, um, into, wow, okay, okay. So look at verse 36 of chapter 2. We're going to start there. It's kind of where we finished. Good place to start. This is the end. Peter's, Peter's getting, getting right there to the end. He, which you know, because what's, what's the first word of verse 36? Therefore... If you've been in my Bible studies, you know I always say, pay very close attention to those connecting words, therefore, or because, therefore. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, 
both Lord and Messiah. Those are loaded words. Messiah is a royal term. Lord is a word that they would hear and they would, I mean, it's just a word that means master, but understand that for the Jews, when they read their Torah, their scriptures, the whole, all the books of the Hebrew Bible, when they came to the name of God, which is sort of brought to English as YHWH, when they came to the name of God, it's called the Tetragrammaton, big fancy word, when they come to the name of God, what they, they don't say the God's name, it's too holy. Instead, they say the word in Hebrew, Adonai, which means Lord. That's why your Bible has the funny small caps Lord throughout the Old Testament. Every time you see it in the Old Testament, the small caps Lord underneath it in the Hebrew is the name of God. The name given to Moses at the burning bush. This name of pure being. And now Peter says to them, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And their heads are, and you, I know their heads are spinning. Just spinning. And verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. My Baptist friends call that being convicted, do they not? Charles. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Right? Because um, deep down we know something's wrong. We do know something's wrong in this world. Something's wrong with all of us. We get confused. We don't understand why. Why is this? When we grow older, we become wiser about seeing in ourselves what we, when we're young, we tend to only see in others. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Are you telling me, Peter, that we crucified our Lord and Messiah given to us by God? And here's Peter's reply. Repent. Repent. And be baptized. Repent is not a church word. It's a word which means turn 180 degrees from the direction you've taken and go in the other direction. It could be, we have instances of this word being used to talk about when a military leader is trying to convince, you know, rebels to no longer follow the one that they're following and embrace him as their new rebel leader. Repent, turn, boom. Repent. Give up the life you've been leading. Give up this broken world and embrace Christ. Embrace this good news. Repent. Repent and be baptized. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission says what? That they are to go out and they are to, the apostles are to go out and they are to baptize. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a means of grace. It is one of two sacraments in the New Testament. There are only two sacraments that Jesus himself gives the church. One is baptism, and the other is Holy Communion. Um, 
baptism is, it's not magic. It is a means of grace. It is what we do. And when we come to faith in Christ, when we repent, come to faith in Christ, we are baptized. It's what we do. It is a means by which God's grace can pour into us. Okay? And we are then reborn. So all these people gathered there that day. When he says repent and be baptized, what he's saying to them is, you know, come to Jesus and be reborn. Be born a second time. Be born again. John 3. Go home and read John 3. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So, what's that word sins? What separates us from God? What makes us what made them, what makes people at large unable to stand before God? What makes Moses unable to see the face of God in the book of Exodus? Sin, sins, it's a word that describes this separation, this gulf. So the whole, God's, to use the sermon series language we're using now, the Missio Dei, God's mission is to repair that gulf. To reconcile humanity to God. To bring humanity back into a right relationship with God, not on either side of a, of a chasm. And so the forgiveness of sins is a way of speaking of that. It's larger than, it's larger than simply the um, enumeration of whatever you might have done wrong today. Many times we don't even realize the ways we disappoint God. There is a darkness in the human heart that blinds us to even that. It is one of my favorite lines in the Bible is from John's Gospel chapter 1 when John the baptizer, the plunger, sees Jesus coming down the riverbank and he points to him and he says and I love the King James behold I love that word behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin singular not sins plural in the Greek sin singular the sin of the world that's what's in view here Peter says to these people who are gathered repent give up your old way be baptized into this family. Because it's a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's one thing my Baptist friends always got right that I didn't appreciate when I was a little Episcopalian altar boy. I just thought they were weird running around calling each other brother and sister. <laughs> they were kind of weird, but, <laughs> but, but it's a statement about if, if it's actually followed and lived, it's a statement that we are all brothers and sisters. We all are in a family that God has called us to. And we've been baptized into this family. We baptize our infants. Why? Because they're part of this family. They're not excluded. 
They're part of this family. Later on, they will have to claim it to be their own when they're confirmed. And if you want to leave, you can leave. But we're a family. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. So often I say to people that when you come to faith in Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit. Now some people, will, if you talk to them about their life and their, their, their life with God, they'll say to you, well, you know, I, for me it was on a certain day, at a certain time, and pow, everything changed. Other people would be like Jeannie Smith, longtime St. Andrew, remember, who says, Scott, I've loved Jesus my whole life. Both. They're, God works in all kinds of ways with people. But if you are striving to be a disciple, if this matters to you, if you are striving to put your faith in Christ, then indeed you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Indeed you can wear a, a badge that says faith in Christ. I know it's some days you, you feel like you took some steps backward, but you can always take steps forward. It's the desire of your heart. And then you want to bring your actions to match the desire of your heart. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, Nicodemus seeing Jesus in the night. Not understanding what Jesus is about. Not understanding about the Spirit. Not understanding that Christians will, that the people who embrace Jesus and the kingdom of God will be born a second time. That's, I can remember years ago, I did this the first time. It was, I wasn't trying to be tricky. I was preaching, because I, I preached every Sunday for like a decade or more here. And um, I looked at the congregation and I said, okay, if you've been born again, raise your hand. A few hands go up. Other people are kind of like, you know, I don't know, what should I do? I mean, I'm, I, I, I ain't one of those weird Jesus people. I'm, come on, come on. So I said, if you've been born again, raise your hand. And so I finally got everybody to raise their hands because if you have faith in Christ, if you're striving to be a disciple, you have been born a second time. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been resurrected with Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, didn't we, in the last maybe two weeks ago? I think two weeks ago we looked up the verses in Corinthians where um, the church, yes, is the temple of God and the Spirit dwells in that temple. But we, likewise, as individual believers, as whole persons, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God's empowering presence in each of us doesn't make us divine. God's still God and Scott's still Scott. But the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And nothing's the same. You, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't let the world convince you that it's all just the same. No, 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 no. And so he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are, what? Far off. This is about the whole world. This is not just about the Jews. In Acts, the commission of Jesus is what? 
go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is about the whole planet full of people. All humans are made in the image of God. What's God's desire? That all humans would be reconciled to God. This is not about get, keeping people away from God. This is about bringing people to God. Christians get way, they get a lot, we get lost in this stuff. We end up thinking we're uh, security guards rather than ushers. We're ushers trying to bring people so that they can, quit. I'm ranting now. Okay, so, so in the Gospels, what does Jesus say right at the opening when he's beginning to gather the disciples? Indeed, what does Andrew say? Come and see. Come and see. Right? Come and see. That's it. This invitation. Come and see. Yes. We are born. There is something in us that, you know, we have a physical DNA, right? Right? That gives me my, you know, fine, wonderful hair. Okay, we have DNA, physical DNA. So I, I analogize it to us having a moral DNA. And it's flawed. It's flawed. Now, are we also taught how to fear? Who the others are? Who to hate? In the musical South Pacific, any of you have ever seen South Pacific? One of the side stories in it is about the young American lieutenant who falls in love with a native girl. And it simply can't be. It, it, they can't have a future together. And the song that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote for them is, you've got to be taught. You've got to be carefully taught to hate and fear. Which is true, but it doesn't deny this fact that we are born with something wrong. And the name for that is original sin. And people want to deny it. And G.K. Chesterton, a great Christian from more than a century ago, would say, just open your eyes and look around. It is the most empirically proven doctrine about humanity. There is something wrong with us. Look at the world even today in 2023. What's your explanation for it? Why? What? 2024. Yes, I know. That's why shrink. I'm losing 10,000 brain cells a minute, somebody told me. You know? So look at the world. You know, what explanation do. For people who don't want to admit this, what is their explanation for what's wrong? That we don't have enough education, or we don't listen to the right talk shows, or we don't read the right books. No, no, there is something wrong with us, and here's the secret about it, Gary. We can't fix it ourselves. We must have a savior, a rescuer, who will fix in us what we cannot fix ourselves, will not fix ourselves. Exception. Yes, sir. Jesus was not born with sin. But I'm not Jesus. Right? Right. Yes. So this is it. Jesus, Jesus is unique in that way. But was Jesus fully human? Right. So what human is Jesus like in that way? 
No, God's not human. Well, what, what human... Okay, I won't ask a question. Think of Adam. Paul uses Adam a lot. What is the deal with Adam? When Adam is created, does he have this flaw? No. no. I don't know. But when they rebel against God, what is that story telling us? Now sin is theirs. The wages of sin is death. You've eaten the fruit. God says, on the day that you do that, you... It doesn't say on the day. If you do that, you will surely die. Right? And so since... I mean, the story is not meant to have a date attached to it. It's, 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 a, it's a story that explains something deeply important. Um, when Lauren Gerlach was in seminary, she introduced me to the words um, theological anthropology, which I get. I, mean, I know what the two words mean, but I never put the two of them together. And so a, a proper, good theological anthropology is to understand the truth of the doctrine of original sin, that there's something wrong with us. And if you don't, you are, Christians would say, you are naive. And you must be rescued from this. By whom? By God. How? They go back to where? Oh, I. Okay, that's what they have. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Yep. You see? Those words are as true now as they were then. And Jesus says, go out, go out and get them. Come and see. Come and see. The call's gone out. Come and see. Yep. And so it's... Peter doesn't say, well, we're going to start a um, six-week therapy session in which we're going to put ourselves right. That's just, it, it's just, it's just naive. That's Chesterton's point. It's naive. Open your eyes, look at he, the state of humanity, and ask yourselves, isn't there darkness in the human heart? Does the arc of history really bend toward goodness and light? No. It doesn't because there's this darkness here. And here we're all freaking out in 2024 that it's going to be another huge war blowing up in the Mideast or something, right? And China's going to invade Taiwan. And oh. we just, we, you could come back and see me in 400 years when the Starship, Starship Enterprises trucking around the cosmos, what do they run into? The same problem. Okay. Yes. You facetiously were joking about your Baptist friend. Uh, yes. For, for those in this room that were raised, born and raised Methodist. Yes. Have no idea what a poor Southern Baptist boy went 
As a Methodist, you were taught that it's. Oh. Yeah, the Catholics are pretty good at, good at that too. And I come into the Methodist church where this concept of grace was something I never knew about that God was looking at for me even before I knew. And I was accepted and not and not judged. Well, you just you you say it so well in that one probably the, the biggest Wesleyan distinctive is this emphasis on God's grace. Why do churches use guilt? For control. Right? When you come Okay, let, let's approach this another way. This I'll do some because I know I have new people in here. They haven't heard me do some of this before. What does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? That we love God. And what is the second one? That we love others. Okay. So, for love. To be love, it has to be freely given, which we know even in our own lives. Nobody spotted the girl that they were really interested in in college and decided, well, I want her to really like me, maybe even love me, so I'll scare the crap out of her, and if I scare enough, if I terrify her enough, then she'll love me. I, I, that's crazy, is it? Wait, would we all agree that's crazy? Okay, so I go back to my youth again, and I, 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 I would be handed um, flyers and things with the most terrifying things written and depicted in them that are going to get me, you know, if you don't come to Jesus, you're going to like, this is Jonathan Edwards, right? You're like the little spider over the fire and just... God's waiting to drop you in it unless you and I'm, I'm, I come then I become to the New Testament and I don't find that at all I don't find that at all what I find is that Jesus who's filled with grace oh my goodness is he pour out his grace on his own disciples who are blind as bats about what Jesus is doing What's the story of the prodigal son about? One of the most famous parables of all. Does, when the prodigal son returns home, does the father berate him? Does he want to make him feel guilty for everything that he's done when he's headed off to Las Vegas and spent all his money? No. The father lifts his gown, which is really, that's, that's like really, you know, um, humiliating for a Jewish man. He, he lifts up his gown and runs down and grabs his son up in his arms. That's it. That's it. I, I, you know, I promised myself when I started this work 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, that I would really try to read the Bible afresh and really what's there and not things that I might have brought from my past. And I'm telling you, it is filled with grace. This is what Wesley gets right. And this is what still too many Christians 
get wrong. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. For love to be loved must be freely given. Wherever you end up, you can't end up with people being robots. Because who wants to be loved by a robot? I'm, from what I read, we may all be offered the opportunity <laughs> in the next 20 years to do that. But who wants that? Nobody, really. We all know that. We, we don't want to bribe somebody to love us, scare them to love us, anything. That's just not what love is. Not what love is. So, all right. So I spend a lot of time on those verses because what has Luke done here? Luke has, these are two verses that are just packed with what do we do? And here's the succinct answer. And it doesn't change. It, this succinct answer delivered nearly 2,000 year years ago is just as appropriate for today. So, verse 40, with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Repent. Save yourself. It's, um, come to sanctuary. Come to safety. Come to God's arms. Save yourself from this corrupt and, and ruined generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now those, there are those who would tell you that that's just hyperbole. That's just too big a number. I don't accept that. I don't accept that. If later on you have trouble finding thousands of Christians in Jerusalem, I would chalk that up to the fact that these folks probably, they knew what Jesus wanted them to do. They spread out and they worked. And they carried the good news and they started new little house churches and stuff. So I don't, I don't turn my nose up at the, at the 3,000 and say, oh, that's impossible. But it certainly conveys the fact that in this case, on this day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lots and lots and lots of people responded to the good news. Now that would not be Paul's experience when he goes out on his missionary journeys, we will see. Um, the numbers are small when he goes out to respond, but not this day. It's big. This is God. This is God at work, and like Pentecost is this whole big, big, big thing. Okay. So, any other thoughts or questions before we go on? Yes. I've got to move on this side of the air conditioner uh, to hear you. Did I see a hand over here? No? Okay. Yes? No, so that's a, you know, so, so it's being observed that Peter, this fisherman from Galilee, is standing up and delivering this sermon, which is not only cogent, understandable, it is powerful, and it is 
accusatory. It's brave to say you what you condemned, right? So how does he do this? So not night school. The power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the key themes that, well, that's the key theme in Acts 2. But one demonstration of the Holy Spirit beyond the tongues of fire, beyond the violent wind, and beyond the languages they speak in sharing the good news is Peter himself. Because when did we last, in the story, in Peter's story, when did we last? We encountered Peter in the resurrection, but then what was the previous moment that we saw Peter? The denial. You know, for me, I connect the denial to this moment. He denies Jesus, and six weeks later he is delivering this. How can that be? By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So, yes. You, you mentioned just a little bit ago that it was not, uh, Paul did not have this kind of day where he went out and he spoke and there were so many people that were. Paul, I'm not a, Paul never had a day where thousands, thousands of people responded. I'm just curious, why do you think because it was only six weeks since Jesus' death, which most of these people would have heard of, that it was still fresh in their minds, and by the time Paul went out, it was years later. What do you think the difference is? Because Paul was learned and was a great speaker compared to Peter's natural gifts. Well, Paul says he's not a great speaker, and Paul says, but Paul is, is learned, but it's it's wrapped up in this beginning with Pentecost. I think it's more like have when you start a car up, you know, and what do you do typically when you start a car up? You give it some gas. Now do you drive through the city streets with your foot with the pedal down to the metal? Hopefully not. <laughs> so it's a good question because it does, but Things are how do how do, how do things settle in to a more expected course, maybe going forward. Because Paul would go into a town, he would go into the city square and preach to the Gentiles. The, both the Gentiles would say, "Pshaw, how silly a God to get himself crucified, right?" But this day, it is recent, it is fresh, uh, and. There are just thousands of people convicted by what God says through Peter. Good question. Oh, it's still the same day. Yeah, but there's every. Look, remember what happens. So look back earlier in the chapter. You have the 120, but then they all stand up saying the good news, right? In all these languages they don't know. Well, who's outside? Everybody. All these crowds, the city is packed, 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 packed. And so people on the outside, they hear what's going on. They hear this kerfuffle. Why am I using the odd old words? <laughs> they hear the chaos, what seems to them to be chaos in the room. And they say, oh, come on, they're all just drunk. So you know the crowds have gathered, crowds have gathered. Doesn't tell us exactly where Peter was when he gave this, but it's all that same day. And so now, 
There were 120, and now 3,000 respond to Peter's sermon. They respond to what? To God's call. Well, I imagine they stopped when Peter started talking, but otherwise they're talking about, the, how, how would Peter put it in 1 Peter? They're proclaiming the mighty acts who called them out of the darkness. I don't know what specifically what they're saying, but they're all, they're all saying the good news and people hear it in their own languages, and then Peter gets up to speak. But he's only speaking in one He's only speaking in one language. He would be speaking in Aramaic. Right, because that would be the language people or everybody spoke. How, how are the three thousand understanding this then when they could only hear in the languages that the other Because most of the people who are there that day are would be Jews. They'd just be Jews from other parts of the world and if they were to speak the local language it would be Aramaic. So maybe there would be those who couldn't understand Peter. And they would ask a neighbor, well, what's he saying? And the neighbor would say what? Oh, you can't believe it. I'm not going to tell you. No. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So just kind of picture it. It's kind of like, you're right. I mean, it's, it's actually happening. But it's all on that first day of Pentecost. Peter's famous speech on the first day of Pentecost is what we just finished. Scott, yes. Are we seeing Peter as somebody who has been fundamentally changed? Or is he still the same Peter who made the denials but the following events the, the magnitude of the forgiveness he received, which, I mean, who, who would pick the guy who denied you three times in your moments of greatest need to then be in charge of your company? I mean, you just don't do that. So or is he still the same Peter, but he's made a decision to be a different Peter, uh, again, on his own? Okay. So is he still Peter, um, as he was Peter, not actually Simon, when, right, because he's Simon. P Peter's get a name given him by Jesus. So when he's a little kid running around the schoolyard, is this is is that this guy that child? Yes. Would he have Peter's looks and everything? But is he fundamentally changed? Yes. Because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has dwelt in him. It's not just him processing all the experiences he had. That's what we. That's how we do it in the. That's how we see things in the secular world, right? I process the experiences I have and they create in me this kind of desire for change and so maybe I'll change. No, this is the Holy Spirit who is the engine of change, who has indwelt these disciples, has indwelt these apostles, including Peter, and they will never be the same. What we don't grasp is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we can never be the same. Now we might want, we're tempted to run back to the old life. What does Paul say in one of his letters? Don't do it. Don't go back. Why would you go back? A lot of Christians just don't understand that we are not to settle for being a slightly improved version of the same person. We are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We have been baptized, we have been crucified with Christ, we have been resurrected with Christ. All of those Paul uses and they are all past tense. And it's a shame that 
Christians don't really get that. And we, it's how I lived too much of my life. I came to church. I was a regular churchgoer every Sunday. I sang in the choir every Sunday, every Wednesday night, Charlotte. I was at choir practice. I was an Episcopal altar boy. And what was my life? I would take that. That was for Sunday morning. That was for Wednesday night. And then I would go back to the real world. And I didn't comprehend that this is not that. This is not that. You have to resist the call. It's, it's like, it's what Paul talks about so much because the real world, the secular world is so much like a, it can be so much like a bug light. It's almost like a bug light and we just start flying toward it. All the baubles and the bangles and all this, we just start flying toward it. And, and we just can't resist until finally what happens? We're zapped. No, Paul said, no. I don't know. You are new persons. Okay, what does he say in another letter? This is what Paul wrestles with. This is why I love Paul. Paul is the one who has to wrestle with the meaning of what of Jesus's death and resurrection the meaning of his crucifixion resurrection and Pentecost and what did it mean for the world what did it mean for people and so in Colossians what is what does he say you've got to take your old clothes off and put on new clothes don't go back to your old wardrobe you are reborn in Christ if you will embrace that intellectually, your heart will follow. If you feel that in your heart, then your intellect will follow. And your hands and your feet will follow. And things, and you will not be the same. You won't be the same. Indeed, I am not the same man I was at the age of 45. Gosh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> But it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's taking, people want to read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible through this here. Well, great. Super duper. But don't, don't do it in such, you, that it goes in one eye and out the other. If you don't read seeking understanding, it can't be transforming. And Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what is good and pleasing to God. Jesus did tell Peter that he was the rock on which he was going to build the church. Does that happen before or after Peter's denials? Before. before. God, God has purposes. And God, God can certainly know how he wants to use people. Right? And Peter is someone whom God decided to use in an important way. As with Paul. Paul will meet Paul. He's a persecutor of Christians, actively, proudly, happily, career-making for Paul. All right? But he has changed. I'm just trying to help us understand that so have we. So have we. And if we, we, can, we can push it away, 
We can deny it, but if we embrace it today, tomorrow, the next day, it's kind of like forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard, forgiving others. And, and Peter comes to Jesus one time and he says, you know, how many times should I forgive my brothers? Seven times? Because really. And Jesus says what? Seventy times seven. That's the translation of that, the Greek I prefer. Seventy times seven. Well, okay. What do we make of that? In a practical sense, I think that if I had somebody I was finding it nearly impossible to forgive, and I forgave them every day for 490 days, maybe when I finished those 490 days, I'd actually mean it. You know, so, so I think that's a little bit like the Christian walk. You just have to keep walking, keep going, keep going, and don't let the, quote, real world suck you back into their way of understanding everything about this world and about yourself. Just don't. We live in it for sure. But, but, but don't let it get in the way of this renewing of your mind and your heart in Christ. All right. So let's see how these people... Luke gives us these little glimpses into how they lived. Okay? These, these new Christians. Now, I'm gonna, I've got a couple of um, slides. This is the model in Jerusalem that some of you have seen. This is the uh, temple proper there on top of the temple mount. That red-roofed structure on the south end, which is on my end, the direction I'm standing on, is the most, uh, is the largest of the colonnades. Colonnades are on all four sides. These are the pillared roofed areas where people could go and get out of the sun. Because the sun can be really, really strong there. Here's the picture. Um, and we'll see that these believers spent time in the temple courts. Do any of them think that they have stopped being Jews when they embrace Jesus? No. no. That's an idea to get out of your head. That they think that, well, now they're Christians, they're not Jews anymore. They don't. That's not how their brain is operating. It shouldn't operate that way. Jesus was Jewish. Peter's Jewish. Paul is Jewish. He's a Pharisee. None of them would say they're, they're leaving Judaism or something. They just embrace Jesus as the rightful Jewish Messiah. So, you see in Acts, the Jews still striving to live as righteous Jews, embracing Jesus as Lord and Messiah. So, verse 42, they devoted themselves, these are the believers, um, to the apostles' teaching. The apostles walked with Jesus for three years. How many stories do they have? We get some of them in the, in the Gospels, I know, but those are all pretty short. John himself writes in his Gospel that, um, you know, you could fill a library and still not have told all the stories. So they're three years worth, two and a half years, I'll say, two and a half years worth of stories 
about their life with Jesus and what he said and now what it means to them in light of what? The crucifixion and the resurrection. It would be more like looking back at, oh, you know what he said? Oh, now, do you think he meant this? That's, that has to be what was happening. So the apostles are teaching. And they devoted themselves to the teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Isn't fellowship great? You know, it's... it's um, I try to impress upon, you know, people the importance of fellowship in everything that we do. That's why I want you to come here, feel free to bring lunches, I want you to feel free to enjoy one another. It's why we try to enjoy this time together in fellowship. Um, do it with smiles on our faces. Glad to be here. Um, I hope that, you know, friendships are made here. Marriages are made here. Right, Charlotte? Right. <laughs> they, devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Of course they did. It's what the Spirit calls them to because they are now a family. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. The breaking of bread. There's really no reason to think that what Luke is referring to is something like Holy Communion. They are simply, in today's vernacular, you know, you know what they're doing? This is what the young people would say. They're doing life together. Okay, okay. The breaking of bread, they're eating together, right? Um, there's nothing sacramental about this. Some scholars see it in this. I, I, I'm, I don't. I think most don't. Most just see breaking of bread because that's valuable. Don't we love food? Right? What do we want to do when we have something to celebrate? We want to go find somewhere or, and eat or have somebody come to our home and do what? Eat. It's just what we do. It's, a, it's, it's, it's one of God's great gifts to us. So, in the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus returns and everything is put right, will we eat? Yes. Yeah, does Jesus eat after his resurrection? Yes. yes, Luke 24, he sure does. Will it be like being able to go into the Weston Stonebriar every for Sunday brunch and getting anything you want and never putting on any weight? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they devote themselves to te the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to fellowship. They're breaking bread together. They're eating together. They're doing life together. And to prayer. And to prayer. Way too many people have very diminished prayer lives. It's not good. Prayer is a gift from God that God gives us to live in relationship with God every day. Sometimes our prayers are spoken. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're long. Sometimes they're short. Sometimes they're memorized. Sometimes they're not. Doesn't matter. Richard Foster, I thought, had the best image of prayer that God invites us into his 
living room. And there's a comfortable chair for us to sit down in and to open our hearts up to God. Not as if we're going to tell God something we don't. He does, God doesn't know. That's not the point. The point is to share. It's just like, as a parent, I wanted my kids to tell me things I already knew. The fact that I knew them before my son would tell me didn't diminish the value in him telling me, him wanting to come in and have a conversation and come and sit down and open up himself to me. I mean, that's like, doesn't happen as often as it should, right? But it's what God invites us to. So prayer, sure, they're good, they're, they're good, these are good righteous Jews. Jews had a prayer, they had a set times each day they would pray, like, like the Muslims, like in the Christians it's called the daily office, which is a set of prayers that you step through during the day at specific times. So of course they're devoting themselves to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So, it would seem, even at this early juncture, that God is giving the apostles the power to perform some miracles, some things that people have not seen. We'll find out later what the nature of some of them are, but at this point, the power of God is evident to all as the power of God was evident to all through Jesus. It doesn't mean that's how it is today. This is 2,000 years ago. Everyone was filled with awe at the mighty, many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. What they mean is that they shared what they have. They shared what they wanted to share. They lived in common in community. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Okay? So the rich are helping to make sure that the poor members of the community are being cared for. When Paul is on his missionary journeys, what does he do? He collects money from the rich Gentiles to send back to the poor in the Jewish community, Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem. Why? Because they need it, yes, but also because he knows that it will bind the Gentile communities and the Jewish communities of Christians together. That's his goal, unity, unity, unity. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So that's, that's these kind of things. If the sun's too strong, you retreat underneath the colonnade. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They would come from their homes to the temple to be together because they had space. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, is that all hyperbolic? Well, sure. But the point is, and I think this is, plays out in Christian history, is that when the Christians are living as Christians, when the believers are living as believers, 
it is, <laughs> it is a bug light of the best sort to those who see them and say to themselves, oh, I, I want some of that. When the Christians would sit down and take care of people who were sick that they weren't even related to, which, had, which was not done in this world, others saw it and the church grew and believers said, yeah, this, this Greco-Roman pagan world of, you know, Colosseums and gladiators and death and blood is and sex is is not what I want for me or for my children and so the church would grow so yeah it's hyperbolic but they're they're not doing anything to anybody they're just coming together living together trying to make sure that everybody's needs are met and using the resources they have to do that because there's no safety nets the Romans did not view it as anybody's job to make sure that you were okay none of that no social security no anything you were, you were on your own and that's why you needed to have a family and so now the family is the family of Christ and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who would say, yes, I do want that. I do want that. So, um, I mean, it's a wonderful portrait of the Christians living their lives together. I mean, it's, it's a picture that would later on and as the years and the centuries go by would fall apart, really. There have been many Christian utopian communities um, over the last 2,000 years. None of them survived very long. I think for a couple of reasons at least. One is because of the power of original sin in the human heart. Another one is because once you get about 300 years into this story, all of a sudden, everybody's a Christian. It's what everybody's going to check off on their census forms because Constantine's a Christian, his successor is his successor, it becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire in the late 4th century, and boom, now everybody is a Christian. How many of those everybody's do you think are actually striving to be a disciple of Jesus? I would submit not many. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like, boom, everybody is. <coughs> all of a sudden. It takes time. Even when um, I've read some about the Islam conquests across North Africa and so forth, and when people were um, subjugated and then sort of prodded and pushed into becoming Muslim, it wasn't a process. Conversion wasn't a process of 10 or 20 or 50 years. It was more like 200 years it would take. So, um, just having everybody 300 years after this all becoming a Christian at one time is, was not, I don't think, healthy, healthy for Christianity. So, any questions about this paragraph? Because this is where we're going to end today.
Yes, Kathy. Um, let's say you're born again, but you keep sinning, 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 sinning. Well, do you have to get born again? Nope. Okay. So Kathy is asking me a funny question. <laughs> she says, if a person is born again, which means they have come to faith in Christ, and they keep sinning, 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 okay, do they need to be, need to be born again? So there's actually a couple ways to understand that. Just because we come to faith in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit does not mean that we don't have to be transformed and seek the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, ah, you know, I do the things I shouldn't do and I don't do the things I know I should do. So we are caught between the times. Both things are still true of us. Right? So we have to strive every day to do what? To sin less. To be kind and gentle and patient and the rest. That's part of the Christian life. Now, if you have someone who says, yeah, I'm born again, and they, I'll put it my way, they just don't have anything to show for it. They're the same sinning jerk they were the day before. I could have used a stronger word, you know. Appreciate the fact that I didn't. Um, and the day, and they perhaps they were fooling themselves when they said, "I put my faith in Jesus." I mean that that's the sad the saddest category of people isn't really even unbelievers. The saddest category are people who think that they've put their faith in Christ but have not actually done so. Are there those? Sure, I think so. Can we know who they are? No. It's not my job. It's Jesus' job. Can, do they themselves know? I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, not the one, I'm not the decider of any of these kind of things, right? All I know is I have to, it's my job to teach the Bible, proclaim the Word, and wake up every day striving to be a better disciple of Jesus. And I can't really know the state of anybody else's heart. Right? Only God knows that. Only God knows. Okay, anything else before I pray us out of here? Scott, can you add two things to the prayers today from online? Sure I can. Pray for the Hesses and the Brewers. Both of them are in, you know, at home with COVID in their family. So. Okay, the Hesses and the Brewers are both home with COVID in their family. Yeah, it's kind of going around again. So sure is. I don't know what to make of that. But anyway, we will remember them in our prayers. Mr. Brooks. One last goodbye. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. Tomorrow is Patty's birthday. Yay. Thank you, Gary. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, gracious Lord we do lift up today the Hesses, the Brewers, and indeed all of those who are revisiting COVID and I guess we're going to live with this for the rest of our lives and maybe our children and their children forever. But um, help us to learn to live with it well and better. Um, we pray that next week you will bring us back here together, um, ready for more fellowship and ready for to, to dive into your word again. For this is a key part of the life you've called us to. 
we know that we can't really grow to be a disciple of Jesus without Scripture. How, 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 would, it, how would that be? How would that be? Help us to, to come to Scripture in such a way that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will know what is pleasing to you and what your will is and what is good. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.